Just say it. Pray it. Incline your your thoughts and intentions and your motives towards the Lord and say this prayer with me, starting in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You may be seated. All right, so we're studying prayer this summer. We've answered a lot of questions about prayer. We've really developed a, 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 a doctrine of prayer as we've gone through the several weeks and the different passages we've looked at. And last week we came to this, the Lord's Prayer, and began to study what it is and what it's about, what God or what Jesus is teaching us about prayer. And here's the thing, what he's teaching us, at least as I have studied it and I've begun to, to think through it, what is Jesus teaching us? He's not teaching us why to pray. He's not teaching us so much how to pray as in Paul was calling us to pray in the Spirit. He's not teaching us what prayer is. He's really informing us and helping us see how to pray in the sense of what are we to ask? What are we supposed to be about asking God As we approach God, we've been given this great benefit, this great blessing of being able to walk into the throne room of grace and being able to approach this God who calls himself Father. We get to ask him about things going on in our life. And Jesus says, hey, I want you to be able to pray powerfully. I want you to pray, be able to pray in such a way that when you pray, God will answer positively. You see, I said it last week, and I'll say it again this week. I think that as Jesus taught this prayer to pray in this way, as he is teaching us to pray in this way, he was not teaching us to pray maybe prayers, prayers that he maybe will get around to answering. I believe Jesus is teaching us to pray prayers that involve and um, infuse our petitions with God's power so that as we approach God and make requests, those requests are answered positively. We see God move. And I'm just going to tell you, I, it, I want to pray this way. I want to pray prayers where I see God act miraculously. I want to pray in such a way that as I pray, His glory is revealed, not only in me, but through me. It's, it's my desire every week as I come here and, and preach and teach. I don't want to come here simply just to be to be made to look good. There is a part of me in my flesh that fights for that. But I want God glorified. So I come praying, God, glorify yourself. That's my, my that's the deepest heart desire as I come and stand before you. And I pray that. I pray that he would be glorified. And I, and I know as I pray that, I know as I pray that he will do his work. Otherwise, Jesus would have never told me to ask it. He never would have said, go and ask your father for this. He might give it to you. That's not what he said. To pray like this. And then he teaches us all around it to expect God to answer. You see, I I believe that God wants us praying these things because he desires to respond to our prayers. He desires to move through them. It is his will to have ordained them to, to, to be the thing that he responds to. So I think it's important that we take time, we slow down, and we look at each of the six petitions in this prayer, learning, learning from God, learning from Jesus what to pray, what to ask Him. Last week we looked at His glory, hallowed be your name, 
We talked about it in the sense of God glorify yourself. That's exactly what we're asking him. This week we're asking and we're looking at your kingdom come. Now, as we look at it, I need to, I need to just, I, I need to guard us against something. It's really easy when we start to break things apart like this that we lose sight of the whole, right? And so we, we think, oh, I just need to pray for God's glory. Yeah, and you, you can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. I would encourage you every day, be praying for God to glorify himself. Ask him that regularly. But see, if we separate this, the, these two ideas, or even these six ideas, we begin to lose sight of the whole. There's this whole perspective here that's going on. Each of these requests begin to, to depend on one another. And so we must look at them. And, and as we look at them individually, we must not lose sight of the whole thing. Because, for example, as we studied last week, we, asked, we, we looked at hallowed be your name. We asked God to glorify himself. And as we did that, it was very, very straightforward that this is, this is the heartbeat of our prayer, that this is the motive that we come to him, that this is, it's a desire to, to see him worshipped, right? So that was the perspective of that prayer. But we cannot ever expect to see him worshipped if we don't expect to see his kingdom come. We can't expect to see his kingdom come if we don't expect to see his will be done. We can't expect those three petitions that we offer unto God to be accomplished if at the same time he is not demonstrating grace and mercy and generosity to the people that he saved. They work together. They're dependent upon one another. And so these thoughts, these six petitions inform all of our prayer life. Every moment of our prayer. Our petitions, our needs do not stand apart from His glory. His glory doesn't overwhelm our, our needs because in the meeting of our needs, His glory is revealed. They become dependent upon one another. So we can't pray these simply by themselves. These must be the attitudes of our heart. They, they must be the undergirding and foundation of every prayer we offer. And so as we ask, hallowed be your name, we also must ask, your kingdom come. So what does it mean to ask for his kingdom to come? At the heart of it, this request is a, it, it's a request for God to accomplish his mission. It is a missional prayer. In fact, I would say prayer is not just worshipful, as we studied last week, but it's also missional. We can't forget the components of worship in prayer the adoration, the, the, the proclaiming of His glory. We can't forget those moments and, and, and look away from those psalms in which it, over and over his, his high and exalted and holy position is presented. We can't look away from them. But we also can't disconnect them from what He set out to do in Christ. They work together. See, when, when we pray for God to do something, let me let me let me give you a flip of this. Let me let me rephrase this. Let's say we're praying for something. We're really just trying to save our reputation. We've gotten ourselves into trouble. And we really don't care at the end of the day whether God's glorified or not. We just don't want to look stupid in front of our friends, and family, acquaintances. We're just really hoping God will save our reputation. I've prayed prayers like that. Have you prayed prayers like that? See, the reality is, is that as we offer up that prayer, 
and the desire of our heart is not about God's glory, we have no confidence in which we can ask it. We have no ability to look at God, to pray to God and say, God, save me from myself. I've screwed up. Fix my problem. Don't let me deal with the concept. We, we, we don't have any right. We don't have any confidence in which we can go to him and ask and, and expect him to positively answer. The reality of this, the, the, the truth of the matter is he may actually let us be embarrassed that he might be glorified. He might actually let you deal with the consequences of your decisions that he might be further glorified. He might let you look bad in front of others that he might be glorified. Well, the same is true about his mission. You see, we can't look at God and pray to him, God, I I want you to be glorified if we don't care about his mission. We can't be asking him to to exalt himself and to prove himself worthy of worship if we couldn't care less about what he's about doing. So as these two prayers come together, we see God's worship and his mission preeminent. First and foremost, the first two things that we deal with is his worship and his mission. So, What are we praying? What are we asking about his mission? Well, I've got four answers. It's really what the the bulk of our time is is going to be about. Just giving you four perspectives, I think, that as we ask for God's mission to be accomplished, as we ask for his kingdom to come, that I believe this speaks to you. First, I think it says to, to pray for God's kingdom to come is to ask God to establish his sovereign and uncontested reign now and forevermore. Let me say it again because I, there's, there's some pieces in here you need to hear and you need to deal with. To pray for God's kingdom to come is to ask God to establish his sovereign and uncontested reign now and forevermore. I think we need to deal with this first. I think we need to recognize that God's kingdom has to do with the Father's sovereign reign. Who says two plus two equals four? Well, I do. I like that. You know, I feel pretty comfortable with that. But why do I say that? Because somebody else determined it. Who who determined it? Well, my math teacher in in elementary school taught me that. She didn't determine it. That's just the way it is. That's the way God put it together. It's the way God designed it. He's the one that determined what what, what goes and what doesn't. He has a a sovereignty. He's a a king over a a, a kingdom. He says what goes. He determines what's right and wrong. He determines how things should be. He determines what purpose things serve. This is tough for us. We live in a republic, right, where we get a say. I get to cast my vote, and if I don't like it, I can complain about it. When we were saved by Christ, we weren't saved into a democracy. We don't get to cast a vote anymore. How do you feel about that? See, I think that strikes at the very heart of who we are as fallen people. I think it's one of the reasons this is such a difficult prayer. Because we want our say. We want to do what we want to do. We want to rule our own path. We want to be the masters of our own destiny. 
On the other side, you might ask, well, isn't God already sovereign? I mean, you've said it. He's the one that determines the purpose of things. He's the one that, that knows what's going to happen. And, and, and we know, we know that everything that has happened has either been because he caused it or allowed it. That's what the Bible teaches. In the ways, position on God's sovereignty that he is sovereign? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, 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 hold, I wholeheartedly hold to the sovereignty of God. And I will show you passage after passage after passage that demonstrates his sovereignty. I'll point you to Job and encourage you to read Job. I will show you his authority over and over and over in the Scripture. And I will show you that no matter how much a person thinks they have control over their own destiny, that they are still at the hands of God. I will show you Bible passage upon Bible passage upon Bible passage that proves his sovereign rule. But inherent to the request that Jesus has made is a reality. And it's even hard to imagine this to be true as I say those words I've said. But there is a reality that while God may be sovereign, there is a demonic and human rebellion against him. There are people who deny him, who reject him, who actually stand in opposition to him. that would not live in obedience if it was going to cost them their life, which it is. Everywhere we look, this is the case. God established marriage in the garden between one man and one woman. And our culture at large is fighting to say that men should be able to marry men and women should be able to marry women. And while there's all kind of political arguments you can make about that fact, the reality is God did not design it that way. But for me to stand here and say that that is a sin is considered in our culture to be backwards and bigoted. In fact, I might be in opposition to some of you. God established sex for marriage. He intended sex to happen within the confines of a marital, committed, ongoing, lifetime relationship. Yet everywhere we look, everywhere we turn in our culture, it is is fraught with sex. Pop culture says that we no longer, we no longer have a right to say that sex is to be inhibited from our youth. Turn on the TV for a minute. Where do you think people are drawing their parental advice from? Where they're feeling comfortable with how they make their decisions about their kids. Shows like Parenthood and a couple of others. I can't think of the name of them. Modern Family, I think, is one of them. But these present family matters in such a way that it makes sense to no longer inhibit sex and hold sex back from your children but rather than but rather to facilitate it and help them understand that it's okay when it's with the right person the person they love help them to be safe in it 
You see, our culture says that sex, whether it's solo, hetero, homo, it doesn't matter. As long as it feels right, it's okay. That's what our culture says. That's against God's sovereignty. That's in opposition to how He designed it. God has... He's designed us to be interdependent upon one another, to to need one another. He's given me some things that I'm good at. He's given you some things that you're good at. And He's built weaknesses into all of us that we must depend and trust in one another, that we must learn to walk together. But yet, even in a place as holy as the church, There's always people who are striving to take and never give back. So pastors have to come up with things like the 80-20 rule. 20% of the people give 80% of the money. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That's an opposition to God's design. That's an actual affront to His sovereignty. God designed us to worship Him. But instead, we worship all kinds of other things, whether cultic, like in Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Mormonism, or just worshiping ourselves outright by casting our, or building up our own heart idols. I'd rather have the approval of people than the approval of God. I'd rather feel comfortable because I think I've got control than live under the, the faithful control of my Father. Those kinds of things. And so I'm going to do what I'm going to do regardless. And every one of those, every one of those is exactly, every every offense to God's sovereignty is exactly what happened at the beginning when Adam and Eve decided to go their own way, to do their own thing. They determined that they didn't need God's sovereignty, but they had a better plan. We can rule ourselves. We can do our own thing. He's trying to keep something from us. He just doesn't want us to be as happy as we could. And ever since then, ever since then, there have been those pushing back against His sovereignty. Today, today, now, as we come to this place, as we look at this request, we aren't just asking God to show Himself worthy to be worshipped. We are asking God to demonstrate His sovereign attributes, that He rules over creation, that He says what goes and what doesn't, and that we are willing to submit under His authority. That's what we're praying, first and foremost. Second, I think to pray for God's kingdom to come is to ask God to send Jesus. When Jesus returned, it marks in in the timeline of God's mission, it marks the the end of things as we know it. There there are variations of ways that you can look at this based on your end times view, whether you're dispensational, whether you're amillennial, classic, premillennial. It doesn't matter. There's one thing that we all hold in common. When Jesus comes back, the end is here. And life as we know it is about to train, change drastically for the better. Yeah, if, you're, if you've got the, the, the view of a premillennialist and, and you think the, the, the rapture is going to give in to uh, a, a, a tribulation that's then going to lead to a premillennial, it may look worse before it gets better, but because Jesus is back, it's really better. Regardless of what's your view, that's the, that's the reality. Jesus is back. 
And now he is standing. He's, he's standing in this place, no longer a suffering savior, but he is a risen king. He's no longer someone who, who has, who, who has to submit himself to men, but he's someone who stands in authority over them. He's no longer someone who has to be and endure judgment from men, but he's the one who now stands in judgment over them. Now, in my opinion, in, in my perspective, where I'm at in my life, I think this is the easiest one to pray. I, I think you would agree with me. Because how many of us don't want the new world, right? I mean, how many of us don't want death to be no more? How many of you love the idea of death? I just want to keep seeing people die. No. We don't feel that way, right? I mean, we long for this. How many of you love the idea that tomorrow something could happen and you could just be broken in tears dealing with suffering? How many of you feel good about that? No, we we long for that moment where the tears are wiped away, where the suffering is ended, where death has no power. We long for that moment where Jesus says, I'm going to sit on my throne and I'm going to make all things new. That's why Revelation 21 is such a powerful chapter. Because it feels so good to look forward to the better day coming. Man, it's powerful. Yeah, we want that. So it's easy to pray for that. Jesus, come back. Come back. Come, Lord Jesus. There's songs written about it. Because it's easy to long for. It's great to long for. But I think this prayer, it's not just about, it's easy for us to pray. I I think this prayer is is really the beginning, the, the foundation of our hope and our perseverance. I mean, think about this. If there's no better day coming, what are we doing? I could be on the river right now. I'd be kicking back, having a brew. I wouldn't have had to worry about waking up at 4 o'clock this morning. I don't know why I woke up at 4 o'clock this morning. I woke up at 4 o'clock this morning and felt compelled to pray. I wouldn't be exhausted right now because it wouldn't matter. But the reason I keep doing this, the reason I long for it, the reason I come and shout at you week after week after week about the glory of Jesus is because there's a better day coming. It's actually worth it. You see, this is beautiful. This is powerful. This this gives me hope. It helps me see past the fog that, that, that hides the shore from me. It allows me to keep pushing forward, swimming and swimming and swimming through the tide. Because I know there's a time coming when I'm going to hit the shore. Brothers and sisters, you will too. You will too. Jesus, come back. Don't short circuit your plan. Don't miss an opportunity to save a soul. But Jesus, come back. Man, what an easy prayer to pray. To be sincere in and to long for deeply. Man, I love that. I want to pray that. You know what? I can pray that knowing that Jesus is coming back. That's a prayer that will be answered. Why not pray it? (laughs) Come back. Oh, you are? Good. I'll keep going. Come back, Jesus. That's right. You are. That's right. Okay. I can keep on going. Our third reason to pray, I think, this prayer, to pray for God's kingdom to come is to pray for God to save others. And God's kingdom isn't measured like other kingdoms. It's not like you can go to a map and point out the boundaries 
which it existed or exists. You know, like you could go back and you could look at where the Roman Empire existed and how far its boundaries reached. God's kingdom is measured in people, not landmass. The reality is, if you want to be completely literal about it, God owns it all anyway, right? So everywhere you point belongs to him. But then there's those fools among us that, and we were those, that think that they can actually stand opposed to him. And so they think they've got their little kingdoms. And they're going to do their little things. And they're going to set up their life here. And they're going to make things great for themselves. And the reality is, is that we need to be praying this so that God opens their eyes to the lie. They need to be confronted with the fact that there is nothing of this earth that will satisfy. They need to be confronted with the fact that no matter how hard they think or, or, or no matter how right they think they are about how they live their life and how, how, how safe they feel in the idea that they're the, the, the master of their own destiny, that there is a reality that they will one day stand before the creator and sustainer of the universe. They need to be confronted with that fact. They need to be shown that fact. And they need their eyes open to the fact that everything that they see here, everything that they count on here is a big fat, empty lie. There's nothing of this world that can do what God can do. You see, and at the heart of it all is this prayer, God, bring your kingdom. Advance it from me to someone else. Bring it beyond my life to their life. As I stand here before you as your pastor, I want his kingdom to advance over you and to extend past you to the people in this neighborhood, to the people who, who are given to religion, to the people who are given to the, to the accumulation of wealth, to the people who are given to their families who think they're the answers. I want his kingdom to extend to them. I want them to see that there's no hope, that there's no power, that there's no promise in any of those things but that the only hope we have is in His kingdom. The only hope we have is in seeing His glory. And I think, I think this falls right in line with everything Jesus was about. And I think you can see that really portrayed as his, one of His last statements on earth, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We refer to it often. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I love this. Matt Chandler, I actually heard him say that. This is not in my notes. I just, I feel like I got to share it with you. I heard Matt Chandler say recently about this. He's like, you know, we could stop right there because really what follows is not as important as that statement. He says, if Jesus says next, ride, an, ride, a, ride a unicorn and hunt Oompa Loompas, we need to get on the unicorn, right? That's the idea. His authority, he's got it. If he wants me to ride unicorns, I need to find the unicorn. That's not what he says, is it? What he says is, all authority has been given to me. So make disciples. But who are those disciples to be? People who obey. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. There is a reality that disciples are not just a group of folks doing whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it, feeling comfortable in their life. 
there's a reality that as disciples, we are a people called to his mission of saving people. And it should be our heart's desire. It should be our heart's desire to see people come to know Jesus. And as long as there's lostness, there should be something in us that aches and hurts for them. If you look at the suffering of the world and you don't feel pity or compassion, there's something wrong. If you look at the evil that happens and you can just brush it off and you're not striving and, and making a way to see His glory revealed, then you're not doing His mission. You're not, you're not concerned about His glory. You're not concerned about how His kingdom is advancing. That's a problem. There's an issue. But I think that's what makes this such a difficult prayer to pray. It's easy to pray longing for his return. It's difficult to pray when suddenly it begins to reveal something about us. I want you to think back to when Dave taught a couple of weeks ago and he talked and Jesus warned us not just to offer up empty phrases, words that mean nothing. See, I want you to think back to a couple of weeks ago when I taught on the ask and seek and knock and the idea that, that when Jesus taught us to pray, He didn't just say, I want you to say the words and do nothing. He said, I want you to ask and I want you to seek and I want you to knock. I want you to be an active part of this. When you ask for it, I want you to get up and look for it. When you ask for it, don't quit asking for it. Keep knocking. Keep bugging. Keep, keep, keep just putting it in front of Him. Over and over and over. You see, the, the idea is here is that Jesus is showing us in this prayer. He's, he's calling us to this place where we pray for it. But if we can't offer empty words, then that means we're not just part of, we're, we're not just people who are praying. We're part of a solution. See, here's the reality. We're really good at finding problems, pointing out all the issues of why we shouldn't be doing something. Well, that's going to be difficult. I don't like the idea of that. That doesn't feel comfortable with me. It's going to be tough for me. It's going to be tough for, for them who... We've got all kinds of reasons why we don't do something. Jesus, in this prayer and his teaching throughout, he's identified the problem. People are fallen. They're lost. And without him, there's no hope for them. Here's the solution. He saved you. He saved me. And then he sent us. To bring in His kingdom. To desire it and do something about it. To desire it and then seek it. See, that makes this a difficult prayer to pray sincerely. And it should smack us right in the face. Because the reality is, even in the church... And I'm going to say this. I want you to know this. I love our church. we got great things going for us. God is at work. But we are no different than any other Christian out there. It's difficult for us to pray this. Because we want to be our own kings and rule our own kingdoms. See, the reality is that to pray this is not simply to ask for his sovereign rule out there. It's not just to ask that he come back. It's not just that he saves people. To pray this prayer, to ask God to bring his kingdom, is to pray that God sanctifies us. 
We live, we exist as believers in Jesus Christ in a very awkward position. He says, you are my child. I look on you and smile. You are a saint. You are righteous. You are holy. You are clean. You are pure. And at the very same time, he says, you are being made holy. You are being made righteous. You will be given eternal life. You will gain these things. You see, we live in this already but not yet position that's very difficult because in our spirits, the, the, the life that he's put in us, in, in, in the depths of who we are, our identity, we are his. But we have a flesh that fights against that. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 7 about the, the fight he had to do the things he should but did the things he shouldn't. Because we are at war even with ourselves. See, to pray this prayer is to call God to remove our flesh, to circumcise us. But that is no easy prayer to pray. Because there's parts of me I love that I know should be removed. There's things in this world that I adore that I know I should walk away from. Sin. Is joyous for a moment. Feels really pleasurable for a moment. And like you, I like those moments. To pray this prayer is to ask God to circumcise my heart and remove my flesh that I might decrease and He might increase. You see, to pray this prayer is to, is to ask Him in my own life. In my own life. And I'm not looking out at somebody else. I'm talking about myself. In my own life to, to show me the lies I believe. Oh, if you get their approval today. If they pat you on the back when they leave today, you'll be satisfied. For a moment. If I have enough wealth saved, if I have enough stuff around me, then I won't have to worry about the next tragedy because I'll have enough stuff to protect me. If I can just keep control of all the pieces in play, then it's going to go perfect going to go exactly as I plan. You see, those are all lies. They, they, they fool us. They, they, they give us a sense of something, but they are lies. Praying this prayer is, is asking God to show us the lies we believe and replace them with the truth to strengthen our faith in the truth. God is glorious. He is great. He is worthy to be adored. There's nothing in this world that compares. Nothing. He is good. That means that even the difficult things I face are given to me out of His goodness. They're allowed out of His goodness. Even the suffering that I face is out of His good. That's a difficult thing to believe, but it's the truth. As the worship team prayed before we came in here this morning, it, was, it struck me. Josh was praying and he thanked him for the struggles. And I thought, God, 
be glorified in that. I praise you for what you've done in my brother's life to put him in that place. Talk to Josh and just talk to him about some of the struggles. They've not been easy. But God is good. God is gracious. Every blessing we enjoy, prayer, access to the throne room, the hope of salvation, every inch of it is undeserved. You don't measure up, and neither do I. And the reality is that I can stand here and preach till tomorrow, and I can knock it out of the park every week, and I still don't deserve it. Every moment of my life, every moment of our lives is dependent upon His unmerited goodness and graciousness on us. See, God is glorious. God is great. He is good and He is gracious. And we need to believe those truths more and more. When Jesus confronted the crowds that were looking to Him after He fed the multitude, He fed Thousands and thousands of people. There's 5,000 men counting. We don't know how many people are really there. They come looking for him the next day. And he, and he says, look, you're, you're, you're seeking me for the wrong reasons. You're coming after me for the wrong reasons. And they're like, what do we do? What's the work of God? He says, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. I'm not asking you to do more. I'm asking you to believe more, trusting that when you believe more, you'll do more. Because you trust him more. You see, that's what we're asking in this prayer that God would remove the lies we believe and replace it with the truths that we can count on. So what are we praying? What are we asking? When we ask God to send His kingdom, to bring His kingdom, we're asking Him to establish His sovereign rule, to bring this, this timeline, this history to a close that the new age, the new world might begin that we might stand in His glory and that His glory and His sovereignty would be uncontested and that nobody would stand against Him ever again because in that, His blessings will be... I mean, our faith becomes sight and all of a sudden everything we thought would happen is a reality. How? Why wouldn't we want that? It's to ask Him, Jesus, come. It's to ask Him to extend His kingdom here and now by saving others. It's to ask Him here and now to sanctify us. Let's pray. Father, be glorified in us. Be glorified through us. May your kingdom come. God, would you sit down any opponent Would you sit them down and show them your power, your sovereignty? Would you stop them in their tracks and reveal to them the lie that they can stand against you? Father, would you use us to bring your kingdom in this world to save others? Would you sanctify your people? And I know that in this moment, I know in this moment how 
I've been challenged, and not just now, but all week as I've thought about this. For the good of your people, God, for your glory, would you challenge them with the idols of their heart, with the lies that they believe, and the truth that crushes that. It's all these things I pray in your holy and precious and powerful Son's name, Jesus. Amen.